The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine. Usually on this podcast, we talk about politics and the sort of various monsters in the political field. But it's summer, people are going to see movies, and I think in this podcast, and perhaps a few of the upcoming ones, we're going to like look at uh, what's out there in the cinema. And the biggest movie of the summer is Barbie, based on the Mattel toy, directed by Greta Gerwig, already a distinguished filmmaker. It has become a phenomenon. It's on track to make more than a billion dollars worldwide. Gerwig has become the most successful uh, female filmmaker in history with doing a movie that has a woman character in the lead and is like like a real blockbuster. And it's generated an immense amount of discourse because this is not just your run-of-the-mill sort of you know toy movie based on an existing IP. I, I think, to her credit, Gerwig put in a lot of sort of concerns about feminism, the place of Barbie in culture. And it's a we can quibble with the film in many ways. But I, I want to start by saying, you know, like this is a movie that has real originality and voice and a lot of thought went into it. But having said that, not everyone is pleased. Later on, I'll discuss my own family's reaction to the movie, but I, I, I want to bring in a, a voice of someone who I think wrote the best single review of the movie. It happens to be for the Nation magazine, but I like I'd be praising to this guy, you know, even if it appeared in the Wall Street Journal. So it's my guest this week is Tarpley Hips. She's a writer and editor at The Drift, and she's working on a forthcoming book about Barbie called Barbie Land, the unauthorized history. So first of all, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So let's let's just start by saying overall impressions of the movie, and then we can you know go into like some of the details. Cool. I mean, this sort of goes without saying, but it, the bar for new movies right now is so low that I think it's worth acknowledging that like this movie is genuinely fun. It's like bizarre and original, and we're you know still talking about it multiple weeks after the premiere. So there's something to be said for that. But I I found, and it's also so funny. Like there's there's a real, a, a funny movie can get away with a lot in my book. But what I found to be so bizarre about the movie is that it's so clearly trying to get you to feel something. It wants you to love these toys. I think Gerwig in one interview said like, I want you to feel like I did at dinner with my family, like coming out of a warm embrace or something to that effect. And that very much translates from the script. And so coming up against this like clear desire from the filmmaker that you feel something, you're sort of left with these not entirely people-like characters where you're sort of, it, it's unclear exactly how you're supposed to feel about these characters. And I found that in general to yield some strange results. Yeah, no, I, I think in your review, you sort of bring out how muddled the movie is. And I mean, I think one way to think about this is that there were sort of contrary impulses that were at work. I mean, this is like the authorized Barbie movie, right? Like, you know, the Mattel Corporation, you know, which is in the business of selling Barbie dolls, you know, like made this movie or, you know, made the financial arrangements that made this movie possible. But then you had Gerwig as a filmmaker who is very much bringing her own, you know, concerns 
into the movie. And, you know, as a filmmaker, she's someone who's very concerned with this issue of sort of girlhood, which is what can be seen in her previous movies, Lady Bird and Little Women. This, you know, like, what does it mean to be a girl? How do girls come of age? And she sort of brings that concern. And it's a movie that's also coming at a time where, you know, like, gender is a huge polarizing force in politics, that the the Republican right has really embraced a kind of, you know, under Trump, a kind of, you know, proud, toxic masculinity. And that has, you know, there's been a kind of counterwave of opposition, you know, in the form of the Me Too movement and a sort of resurgent feminism. And so I think all these things are going into the movie in very, like, interesting ways, but they're, they're, they don't tug in the same direction. Like, they're, they're actually pulling at each other. So do, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of people call it like the most feminist blockbuster ever made. And like, you know, oh, this is like a huge win for feminism, et cetera. And I think to, to the it is a neat portrait of contemporary feminism in that it's kind of not sure what it is. It's, you know, it's commercial, but it's empowering. And, you know, she can have all these jobs, but she can be ordinary. And there's that huge monologue about how impossible it is to be a woman. But it's not exactly clear what the politics of this film are sort of like contemporary feminism. And so I think that's interesting. It Mattel has always sort of towed a delicate line when it comes to feminism itself. Like Ruth Handler, the CEO who's portrayed in the movie as like this sweet grandmother figure in real life was very much not a feminist, even though she was a CEO at a major corporation for the second half of the 20th century. But she would say in interviews like, you know, yeah, I don't think women really have the business acumen for, you know, executive positions, even though she had one. And Mattel would sort of move slightly with public opinion, but in this very careful way where it was about empowerment. The 1985 famous 1985 tagline is we girls can do anything, but it would not say the word feminism and or anything that that might entail and I think that you see that in the movie where Gerwig has gone public and said like oh this is a feminist movie and a lot of people have said that but the movie doesn't totally have a clear idea of what that is or yeah yeah no no I I think I think that's right I mean in some ways it's a sort of contradictory positions of particularly liberal feminism like as one sees it in the United States, being torn between sort of, you know, a desire for individual advancement, but also, you know, like a kind of social critique. But then also, you know, as with liberalism, a kind of belief that like large parts of the existing social order are already okay. You just need to sort of have more mobility within that. And so I think these are all things that like kind of, you know, tug in different directions and they get, yeah, they, they get a different degree of salience. I think one point about, you know, the ambiguity of the feminism, which I think your review really brings out, is the the role of Ken. And I, th- I think that's kind of worth talking about. And I, I'll say this as like a film viewer and as a, a parent. My my family has had this kind of ambiguous relationship. Where when my I have three daughters, ages 12, and then two twins who are eight. And when they first saw the trailer, they were not enthusiastic. And I was a bit surprised by that. Because at least a 12-year-old had a Barbie phase when she was younger. But they didn't think the movie was for them. But then they heard, after the movie was released, some of their friends had seen it and really liked it. And it is a real phenomenon. So, you know, they were kind of talked into seeing the movie. And when they saw it, 
they were again kind of backtracked away. They they kind of you know weren't sure like what exactly this movie is about. But one thing that came clear in their viewing is they really liked Ken and they liked Ken more than Barbie. And like to the, in the sort of weeks since we've seen the movie, they continue to sing the Ken song. And Ken is the character that they talk about about a movie that otherwise they say like, well, you know, we actually really preferred Elemental. And we really preferred the Kraken movie, among other summer kids' bear. So it is odd that, like, you know, Ken is the character that really dominates the, you know, this putatively feminist movie. It comes back to that, like, the movie really wants you to feel something for these dolls, right? And they they say as much explicitly. But then when you look at the raw material of what each character is given, like, it's Ken is the person who has all the most interesting arcs, all the best jokes like he's this natural underdog we see him he had he has the unrequited love arc we see him like you know he's he loves barbie and she doesn't love him back there's just so much that makes ken feel like to the extent that a doll that lives in this alternate universe that where everything is perfect can feel real ken is that ken's that guy and so it, you, there's just this sort of emotional confusion where it's like damn gosling stole the show and so yeah, that that was just kind of interesting to me, but it's not a quite, it's not an exact neat s- script flip where it's not like he's exactly the woman and we're supposed to feel like he's the underdog. Because eventually, because the, in the first half of the movie, he you see how all these ways in which the Kens sort of have this hor- horrible, sad existence, and then halfway through the movie they're supposed to become the bad guys where they're running the the revolution to overthrow barbie land and they're somehow even worse even more evil than the mattel executives which just felt like a a, a not totally it felt like a weird emotional choice there where we he's the natural sympathetic figure who then becomes the bad guy and then at the end he's sort of like given a modest win but not, no real change and supposed to be happy with that. Yeah, no, no, it is so weird because I like emotionally, it you, you do sympathize with Ken. And I, I, like I said, I, I, I was really struck by this just by watching it with my daughter. So, you know, he's a character. And it's partially because of, you know, the performance as well. Like I think Ryan Gosling does this very, you know, sad puppy Ken, sad-eyed puppy Ken, which is very sympathetic. But, 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 and also, you know, it, it doesn't map on perfectly, but there is a way in which he does play the woman's role. And, you know, I think an argument that people make on behalf of the film is that it's a sly satire because what you see in Barbie land is a patriarchy, but reversed. And that you're supposed to see how Ken suffers and that this is what women suffer in the real world. But it doesn't quite work because then Ken leads, as you say, no, not just a revolution, it's a coup and it's a January 6th coup. So are we supposed to say like, well, the January 6th coup was justified. I mean, I, I, in some ways, you know, you could say this is the most pro-January 6th movie <laughs> that we're likely to see on a Hollywood. Absolutely. Absolutely. But then, yeah, yeah. So, so, so again, that gets at the sort of the, the muddle of the movie, but maybe a muddle on a, like a feminism that I think your earlier point about like not knowing what it wants or is very pertinent because one reason why Ken is so sympathetic is that he, he's allowed to have desire, right? He's allowed to, he's allowed to like want Barbie, even though he's like a sexless doll without genitals. He still, you know, he wants something from Barbie and she doesn't, right? And then, and then he wants social change. 
you know, and she's like, so, so, so we're, we're given a, a portrait where like, you know, men have needs, desires, agency, you know, a will to change. And women in the form of Barbie exist in a sort of confused, like, well, I'm unhappy, but I don't know why. And I don't know what I want. Like, like it, anyways, I'd like your thoughts on that. Like, do you think that's fair? That that he gets several desires? No, no. I mean that that, that 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 that. Do you think that's a fair characterization of the movie? That it's a movie where men have desires and agency, and like women are just left in a state of like generalized dissatisfaction of not having desires. Yeah. No. I to- I totally agree. And I mean, Barbie is is the stereotype. Barbie is the straight man. Um, I think is how she that that I, I would imagine that's how they conceived of her. But her straight manness is so straight. That there's just like, you know, she has no clear motivations besides this sort of like general malaise and wanting to feel real. Whereas Ken's motivations are so clear, <laughs> you know, he wants Barbie to like him and to be able to vote. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Although I, I, mean, I guess, I mean, it's interesting that that desire to be real, like you could create a narrative arc out of it. You know, it's the Pinocchio story, right? Like you have the doll and it's this. I created human image, but it, it it wants to exist in the real world. I don't know, like emotionally, how much that resonated. I, I know that, I mean, it really comes through at the very last scene of the movie, which I won't spoil for people who haven't seen it yet. But like, did that resonate with you? Like, like, like the sense of like, you know, Barbie's this doll and she wants to be real. Like, it seemed like more, to me, it seemed like more like an idea than like a narrative that worked. But I'd be curious to what, what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think it could have worked, but I didn't understand why she wanted to be real. Mm-hmm. Like the real world was not exactly kind to her, <laughs> you know. And Barbie Land seems pretty chill. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> well, well, why would? Except that, I mean, well, you know, one could say that, like, you know, existing as a creature without genitals, a human without genitals, is maybe not the greatest thing. And if you were given like sort of like sexual desire. Or, you know, like some sort of romantic interest, which Ken has, but she's not allowed to have. Like, like that seems like a real, like, double standard or like, whoa. And it really sort of, like, limits her character. Like, like you can understand, like, okay, I'm going to give up the eternal life of being a doll for the frailty of humanity because I can have sex, right? Like, that actually makes sense, right? You know, I can have romantic relationship and family life and, and also passion. Like, that, that, I think that's a compelling story. But that's not quite the story we're given. Yeah, you can almost kind of feel the movie being hemmed in by other people's expectations and sort of living up to the not unsubtly sexist legacy of Barbie, where I think there's a version of this movie where Barbie would have wanted to have a real relationship and would have wanted to be able to experience like, you know, romantic love. And that could have been the motivation that she has for going to the real world and becoming real. But the thing about Barbie is that she's never had a plus one. I mean, her plus one has been only a plus one. He is just Ken. And that was like one of the only feminist things about Barbie was that the her boyfriend was this, a sidekick. And, and so you can feel the script being like, she can't end up with a man. We're, we're avoiding that trope. Right. And so, and so I, I did kind of appreciate that on, on some level, but it also sort of you know, in the void of having romance be the thing that leads you to the real world, 
It's like, what do you want from it? Let's, there's so many other options, but, but I didn't feel like I got any. <laughs> yeah. Well, or I mean, it doesn't have to, I mean, I, you know, I, that's a really great point. I mean, I, I can see that you don't want it to be like Barbie ends up with a guy, but I mean, there's so much more to like being an embodied woman than just like, you know, being a girlfriend, right? Like, like, you know, like, you know, what is it in the real world that Barbie could want that she doesn't have? And I think that there are probably a lot of things, you know, and it doesn't necessarily include like, you know, a permanent partner, but it could, could just be like, you know, the thrill of being in social life and, and of having different part, many different partners. And it doesn't have to even be a man, right? Like, like one can imagine an ideal, you know, Barbie that has a different type of Barbie movie where she is given those desires or or sees things in human life that is that is missing in hers but 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 yeah that that's not what this movie gives i think that you're you the, the last point that you made like like that, that is, it's hemmed in is very right and it might be hemmed in because of the sort of you know this is a pre-existing intellect, intellectual property and there are these barbie rules you know that don't quite make sense but they are the rules of the barbie universe and so that that might be a good occasion to talk about, yeah, some of the origins of Barbie and the sort of you know contradictory messages that have come out, and especially since you're doing you know like a, a biography. So do you, do you want to talk about a little bit of where Barbie comes from? Sure. So Barbie starts in Germany. Basically, there was a there's a there is a tabloid called Bild Zeitung, which is sort of like the Daily Mail of Germany. It's one of the top, most subscribed to newspapers. And it has sort of a, a, a sort of sensational, emotional, slightly conservative bent to it. And in the 50s, that paper was going to print. It was going to be this sort of, you know, post-war West German tabloid based on British tabloids. And, and then when it goes to print, they have a blank space on the second page. And so last minute, they have to scramble and fill something in. And Axel Springer knows this cartoonist, Reinhard Bottin, who just draws a sort of facet doodle. And it's this, you know, thin blonde woman who likes rich men. And she's like visiting a psychic. And she says, do you know the address of a, a tall, handsome, rich man? And this was just supposed to be basically a page filler. But so many people wrote in and it became like this very popular public face of the newspaper. So it turned into a daily cartoon, but not just a daily cartoon. Like there would be models of the of Lily. That was the cartoon's name, Bill Lily, on, you know, newsstands and kiosks and all this merch. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Merchandise, so she becomes sort of like the mascot of this paper and eventually a doll. And so that's the doll that Ruth Handler encounters in 1956. And she buys one, sends it off to Japan, basically has them reproduced in exactitude. There's some minor, minor changes, but it's mostly to the way the plastic is manufactured. And, and what they do with it, the injection molding techniques. <laughs> and so the one that appears on the American market in 1959 is very similar. If you look at the two side by side, it's you can tell that this is a <laughs> more than inspired by the German doll. I'll just say like Lily, based on your account, and I looked at some of the cartoons, is very much a sort of, you know, male objectified view of women. You know, if it's, it's a 50, so it felt a little bit like maybe a less curvy Marilyn Monroe, you know, as, and especially the Monroe of like how to marry a millionaire, right? The kind of, you know, ditzy woman that's like, you know, looking to know she's sexy and wants to use that sexiness to, you know, gain male attraction. And it's also in some ways, you know, like you see a lot of the cartoons that ran in Playboy by people like Jack Cole and whatnot. I have a very similar aesthetic. And so, so it is, an, it is something that like, you know, like in the German form is, like appealing, I think it, it seems like like to men and to you know men who a uh, sex doll for men. Okay, so that is a it's in, there's a lot of debate among Bill the Billy historians about whether <laughs> sex doll is appropriate. Yeah, and I initially used the term myself, but I've come to the conclusion that it's not quite right. Okay, okay. So it's this. You know, she's definitely this, you know, Marilyn Monroe, thin Marilyn Monroe character who's obsessed with rich men. And she, all of her, you know, captions are about men, about, you know, getting money in some way. And the doll that is later produced is totally like men buy it. It's a bachelor party gift. It's something you, you know, you're meeting your friends at a tennis game. You bring a Bill Lily in a tennis skirt. This was a, that was an actual thing. And it was like a joke. Mm -hmm. uh, but but it's but the way that kind of woman would have registered to German audiences at the time it was like actually kind of rebellious in that the personality of Bill Lilly was sort of modeled on the American secretaries who were there with like American troops. And it was sort of this alternate mode of being a woman. It seemed to represent this alternate mode of being a woman con contra the, you know, rubble women of the po post-war era. And the sort of like Hitler values, the, the three K's like kitchen. Yeah, yeah. And what, what's the third one? Yeah, I, I don't know. But I mean, there's that very domestic ideal of the sort of bulkish, you know, mother that we know from your know, sort of Nazi iconography of, you know, surrounded by the little blonde kids and in the kitchen, right? Like, yeah. Right. So much like Barbie, who is this like, you know, objectively speaking, not like, not a not a totally feminist icon, right? She's obsessed with shopping. She had that little book that said how to lose weight. You know, she there's so many things to quibble with in terms of how Barbie renders an idea of femininity. But at the same time, you know, 
she never she never has kids she's never married she has all of these own jobs you know she she goes to the moon before most americans could get credit cards and bill lily was sort of similar where it's not by contemporary standards a feminist portrayal of womanhood at the same time it was kind of out of sync with how women in german media were portrayed at the time and that's part of what fueled her popularity yeah, I know. That's so interesting. I mean, there's a way in which there was that sort of 50s culture, which one also sees in sort of like Playboy. And Barbara Ehrenreich wrote about this like wonderfully in her book, In the Hearts of Men, this sort of 50s culture that is a revolt against domesticity and, you know, like, you know, is an embrace of the freedoms of consumer society. And on the one hand, like it was initially geared towards men, but it spoke to a dissatisfaction with that sort of more traditional or constricted lifestyle that eventually also spoke to women. So so I, I you can kind of see there's, you know, contradictory messages as so often in popular culture, right? Like you're both sending messages of conformity, but also messages of rebellion to appeal to like a diverse audience that might have itself conflicting desires. So right. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so, so so okay, okay, that's, so so Lily was not a sex doll. I, I retract my characterization <laughs> of her. No, but, but it, it shows in which, the ways in which, you know, Things that might, you know, in the 50s, like even Marilyn Monroe herself, like things that, you know, to 21st century eyes might seem sexist, were also also a form of liberation against forms of oppression that we don't necessarily experience or remember in as lived experience. Right. And and that's it. She was still an advertisement. But yeah. one other thing that's kind of interesting about her is the in the short arc that she had in the late 50s, she goes through a lot of the same phases that Barbie would later go through over the course of seven decades. And one of which is that in 1958, her popularity culminates in a movie that was as big a phenomenon. I mean, not as big, nothing's as big as this phenomenon, but almost as big where there was like a cross country audition process to find a woman who looked like Bill Lilly. And one random actress named Ann Smyrna was spotted in a grocery store and she becomes this like mega celebrity. And this movie, you know, it translates to like little girl in the big city is the the the, the feminist politics there. There, you know, it's it's limited. But uh, but she is like, you know, an action figure, like mm-hmm. an action star. She she does, you know, martial arts and solves mysteries and saves the day. It is a bad movie, though. <laughs> OK, so I, I, I we won't be recommending that movie, but, but it, it is curious that it exists. So so I it seems like I, I mean, it is interesting, though, that, you know, like Lily was like, you know, made for like adult men, you know, you know, we can acknowledge a kind of ambiguous figure in the sort of gender messages being sent out. But still, that's the audience. And then like, you know, like, you know, by the late 50s, like all these American girls kind of take up Barbie as, as their model. Like, well, like, well, what are, what do you think young girls are kind of seeing in Barbie that, like, you know, makes her the huge hit that she is in the 50s and 60s? Well, so when Barbie first launches, it's kind of a bust. Mm-hmm. They'd way overordered, and it sort of peters out. But it, as soon as school gets out that summer in 1959, they start selling the cupcakes, and, and Barbie becomes this mega phenomenon. And the question of like why Barbie over all the other dolls is is sort of the question. Like there's so many dolls. Why is this the doll that has become arguably the most famous doll in all in the history of civilization? 
And I think it's a couple things. One is that Mattel really had an early grasp on the power of, of marketing. So in the 50s, a lot of toy marketing, all of toy marketing happened in print. And Mattel realized in 1956 that TV was going to be like the medium of the of the next step, few decades. And so they spent way more than they should have. They they spent some uh, like 20% of their annual budget on this gamble to partner with the Mickey Mouse Club, where they would blast out advertisements in between TV segments. And that was like really radical at the time. A lot of, you know, ad, ad activist groups were furious because it was the first one of the first times that televised advertisement was directed at children. And so that was one thing. It turned out to be a like a real gold mine for them. But and then, but then the other thing was they realized they took what the the handlers referred to as the razor blade theory approach to marketing. The idea being that Gillette doesn't just Gillette will sell you a razor once, but then for the rest of your life you're buying the heads. Mm-hmm. And so I think they figured out pretty quickly that. They or they figured out a way to make a doll where the doll is just the entry point into a constant series of purchases where you're you're not just buying Barbie, but you're buying her clothes, her outfits, her accessories, her dog, her horse, her dream house, her Corvette, you know. And so it becomes this like o- open door to a world of you're just spending a ton of money at Mattel. And G.I. Joe actually comes out two years after Barbie and is modeled on a similar idea. They were like, we ha- how do we replicate this sort of open-ended purchasing scheme, but for targeted at boys? So they rebranded as action figure and introduced a similar kind of idea to the marketplace. So I, but, so I think that Mattel figured out really early how to market. Then I also think that this, this blankness of Barbie, the fact that she has so little context, made her infinitely reproducible in different contexts. So if a rival doll came out, they Mattel could just release a Barbie that was doing that. And you could have the Barbie doing XYZ activity as opposed to this new doll that you've never heard of. So for example, there was a in the 90s, this toy company rival called Kenner was trying to sort of carve out a portion of the fashion doll market. And they introduced a pageant doll and they'd licensed the rights to some one of the pageants, Miss USA, Miss America, I, I forget, one of them. But they they introduced this pageant doll to the marketplace and Mattel immediately comes out with a pageant Barbie, immediately, come, and then and then get they get into a legal conflict over copyright infringement and Mattel wins. So they, they've mastered this ability to like, oh, you think your new doll can do something? We have this very basic blank canvas doll and we're going to have her do that also. <laughs> yeah! Wow! Uh, no, that's I, I, I'm glad you mentioned these sort of like economic aspects. I, I think I do think you know in the sort of idealized world of discourse, like you know, people tend to forget the very basic fact that this is like a consumer product, you know, being put up by a huge corporation, and that that sort of setting the sort of dictating a lot of the terms in which both the doll and its interpretation exist. As a sort of final thing, maybe we can say a little bit something about Ruth Handler, the sort of executive who you know, was instrumental in creating Barbie and is a character in the movie played by Rio Perlman. In your review, you kind of mentioned that, you know, like the uh, the way that uh, she sort of cast is a uh, very, you know, trying to make her into a, 
like a Walt Disney or Stanley figure, like, you know, like someone who's a benign public face to this enterprise and the heart of the enterprise, the creative heart of this enterprise. But Ruth Adler is a very interesting and complicated figure. Do you want to just like briefly say something about her? I mean, she was a really complicated figure. I it, It's interesting that they framed her as the creative heart of the company because she was always the business mind. Mm-hmm. It, her husband, Elliot, was the creative mind. Yeah. And so there's so many slight misconceptions of her. One is that in the movie, she's painted as this sort of like sweet, ethereal, grandmotherly figure who, you know, despite all the, you know, perverse values of the of corporate priorities, is the real like human beating heart of of the, you know, Barbie machine. And that is just not true. I mean, she was a fascinating character. She was like, you know, funny and and biting, but, you know, not sweet. She was, by all accounts, like a brutal boss, a terrifying force to contend with. And one who was charged, had was charged for fraud and for false accounting practices in 1978, she was indicted. But basically in the, in the, you know, early seventies, Mattel had been growing at this, you know, as crazy rate for years and the the their growth started to slow and then they started to do poorly and their the you know sort of top executives were implicated in this scheme to sort of make it seem like Mattel was doing better than they had been so it was pretty straightforward fraud <laughs> but Ruth Handler gets off really easy she gets a suspended sentence and just community service and she has to start a, a charity which had some absurd acronym that was it's spelled people but but so she was just kind of way had way too many rough edges for the kind of sweet and and almost a disservice to her overly simplistic character who sort of laughs like i have got problems with the irs but then (laughs) it just has barbie's best interest at heart yeah i don't know i mean i mean it's also very gendered and this might be one of the most subtlest ways in which the movie reinforces their traditional gender norms, but yeah, it's casting, you know, this hard-edged businesswoman, you know, who's like, you know, really, you know, corporate capitalism in its most raw form. And it could be by some lights, a feminist hero in that way, like, you know, you know, pioneer of women in the boardroom, but recasting her as this benign, creative grandmother who like, you know, has a heart, whereas the men don't like so that. I mean, like, you know, there's definitely some gender politics there, I'd say. Definitely. I mean, I also thought the way they portrayed the Mattel executives was so bizarre. Mm-hmm. It was it felt so not fleshed out to me where on the one hand, I I think Gerwig felt she needed to make fun of Mattel mm-hmm. because otherwise people would write off the movie as a commercial, which they were going to do anyway. But 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 as a result, she couldn't exactly land on figure out what they were whether they were good or bad because on the one hand like everything almost everything they say is like sort of unsubtly sexist but then when ken starts to take over barbie land and ken toys in the real world start doing well there's this bizarre moment where will ferrell one of his assistants says oh we're still making the same amount of money like why do we care if ken's are taking over barbie land and will ferrell gives that weird speech about how he's like you know the brother of a niece of a mother which is actually kind of funny but (laughs) But then for some reason, he actually does care. Yes, yes. He's just shown as like, we could, the Mattel executive is shown as being like, you know, we want to actually do something for girls. And that's that's our concern, not just money, 
and then also like what weirdly offsets it. I mean, you're right about the the way there it is a comedy and there's a lot of humor and some of it's on set, but he also says, you know, like I care about young girls, but not in a bad way. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it's like it's just, I I admit, I, I laugh. It's a funny line, but it's also a bit of an unsettling line. Like just it's in the really context. Weird. Yeah, it's very weird. But I I was trying to conclude it. I mean, like Hamper like seems to be such an interesting like character, like the real Hamper as against this, you know, movie creation. And you know, like I can almost imagine to bring in the other big blockbuster of the summer, you know, like an Oppenheimer type movie, you know, first you have the creator of the bomb, now you have the creator of the bombshell. And just as Oppenheimer, you know, that's that's good. <laughs> might have had like, you know, like you know, ambiguous or you know, understandable motivations in terms of, you know, wanting to just make sure America got the bomb before Nazi Germany. But then he came to realize that he's unleashed something on the world that's like, you know, truly monstrous and will have like, you know, could destroy us all. I mean, that's kind of true of Barbie as well, right? Like, you know, like you could kind of see like, you know, like if it, in the 50s, it gave girls a doll that, you know, like is very active and, you know, part of, is not domestic and not defined by motherhood. But but then, you know, like it's a plastic doll that, you know, so, you know wrecking huge like ecological disaster on on humanity. So, yeah, I, 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 I would say that if there is another Barbie movie, I, I want it to be an Oppenheimer style film about Ruth Hamler. And also, in both cases, the, I mean, Oppenheimer came at the contradictions of sort of Jewish assimilation, of being a, you know, very assimilated German-Jewish-American, but then, you know, confronting the, the WASP power structure that by the early 50s decided, you know, like, well, some of these Jews are like a little bit too left for us and suffering McCarthyism. And, you know, like, Hathler herself, like, you know, like being this, you know, Polish-Jewish-American who create, you know, uses this like German model to create like, you know, like I have to say one of the most Aryan dolls imaginable. Yeah, there's there's some interesting contradictions there, but yeah, yeah do, you, do you want to write a, a Ruth Handler biopic? I mean, I think she has, I, I, I didn't love Oppenheimer, but I did think it was the, they, they, the ambiguity about how you're supposed to feel towards him, I thought was, you know, there were so many ways in which it was conveyed just meticulously. And I think that Handler has so much backstory that w would lend itself to that kind of ambivalent portrayal that the movie, this movie could have done, but it would have been too complicated and would have made it more her story. But she's she's definitely ripe for a biopic. <laughs> okay, so if anyone out there is listening, Hollywood, it is a strike. We're not going to like scab. But the, we have a we have a pitch here. You can uh, contact uh, Tarpley Hit at the Drift or via the Nation, and have your people talk to our people. So, so again, on that note, I want to thank Tarpley for for being on this podcast and for this really fun conversation about Barbie. Thank you for having me. It was so fun. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.